Hey, everybody, this is Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. This week's guest is Reverend Wendy Hamilton. She's a DC area activist, minister, and mother who is holding workshops on grief and trauma in the age of civil unrest. I invited Rev Wendy onto the podcast because we are connected through Andrew Yang. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I will have a link in the show notes. We have a common belief that your work is not your worth. If you never work another day in your life, you deserve housing, food, medical care, and the ability to live a life with dignity. But I really asked Rev Wendy to come on the podcast to talk about what she calls the storm before the calm. That's the process of dealing with the problems that come up over and over again and actually tackling the root cause of what's happening in our society to get through it, to get to that place where there's actual social justice. This episode covers work, power, politics, money, race, and God. That's a lot. But sit back and enjoy my conversation with Rev. Wendy Hamilton. Hello, Rev. Wendy. Welcome to my podcast. Hello, Lori. Thank you for inviting me and for having me today. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. You know, there's so much happening in the world right now. So I just want to pause for a second and ask you to introduce yourself to the audience and tell us how you're doing. So my name is Reverend Wendy Hamilton, and I am originally from Ohio. I'm now based in Washington, D.C., where I came to go to college at Howard University and Howard School of Divinity. I am active in a number of things in ministry and counseling, and I dabble in politics a little because I am in Washington. Um, how am I doing? Yeah. Phew. Yeah. That's, that's about the best way I can describe that one, Lori. There are yeah. so many things happening all at one time that I'm really just doing my best like everyone else to try to process things, not even one day at a time. It's almost moment to moment in this environment. And so that's how I'm doing. All right. Well, I asked you to be on the show today because we connected over a love and an admiration of Andrew Yang and his idea around universal basic income. I discovered him in February of 2018. He had literally just joined the race, had just filed, and they wrote an article about him in New York Times. The robots are coming is what it was entitled. And so I'm just, you know, gazing through the news and it's introducing this young Asian man who is running for the presidency in 2020. I'm like, I'm still reeling from 2016. I can't even think about 2020, but okay. And here he was talking about, you know, he was going to run and he was running on the threat of automation and universal basic income. But he said, we have gotten away from taking care of everybody. We're losing people. We're not paying attention. We're so focused on Trump and the the bigger reasons we think he got elected. We're not looking at the data. And what the data shows is the Midwest lost jobs and automation is threatening lots of jobs. And it, it spoke to my heart, Lori, because in Ohio, where I grew up, my grandmother worked at the shoe factory. My grandfather worked at the atomic plant. And we, we made a pretty decent living. $17, $18 an hour in the 70s was pretty good money. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I thought to myself, when those jobs got automated away or shipped overseas, there was nothing in that came in to replace them. And I thought if they had had at least the guarantee of $1,000 a month coming in, 
what a difference that would have made for them. Like they were in despair. They did not know what they were going to do. You know, they too slid into alcohol addiction. And so I just said, finally, somebody is offering something tangible to people saying, here, we see you. We see your pain. We may not be able to give you much right now, but here's something to tide you over. Here's a lifeline to help tide you over until we can figure this thing out. But what we're not going to do is let you simply fall through the cracks because we don't have the courage to acknowledge what's happening in this country. So I was like, I wrote him an email that I was like, sir, I don't know who you are, (laughs) but you are on to something. And if I can help you, I will help you. They wrote back and that's how I've been involved with them ever since. Well, that's pretty terrific. And I like the word that you use, courage, because I've done a couple of episodes on universal basic income. And a lot of people come back and say, that's just a handout. It's just another form of the government giving people money and it's not going to help anybody move forward, climb the social ladder, as if any of those points are valid, right? And as if that's what this is all about. But there's courage needed to say, we have enough money for this. We have enough money. Mm -hmm. Right. And I tell people, it's not a handout, it's a help out. We used to do that for each other in this country. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, I'm helping out Jeff Bezos all the time by ordering from Amazon. So listen, and he's not paying a lick of tax. I paid more taxes this year than he did. Oh, frustrating, frustrating. (laughs) He's like tripled his billions or something over the course of this pandemic, you know? So forget about it. But yeah, so that, and then from a faith standpoint, Andrew's message around humanity first and universal basic income being available without being means tested. That means we're not going to let the poor be forgotten. That's looking out for the least of these. That's taking care of everyone, the oppressed, the widow. So I saw such spiritual overtones to what he was doing too. I felt like this is something I need to also take to faith leaders and be able to communicate because so much of religion has been co-opted by the right in terms of it just being about abortion or, you know, gay marriage marriage and things of that nature. But there's a social justice aspect to faith that is also very relevant. And I felt like that would give some religious folks cover if they were willing to hear that perspective of Andrew's message. Here in North Carolina, where I live, we're really proud of the Reverend Dr. William Barber. And what he did with Moral Monday was so multifaceted. He is just the best. (laughs) He is. And I want to know, from your perspective, what the intersection of social justice and faith means to you. Well, let me first, again, just say how impactful and what an icon guru, any other superlative I can come up with to describe Reverend Barber. (laughs) He is. He is a prophetic voice for this moment. I actually had the pleasure of working with Dr. Barber for several years. I worked at the NAACP headquarters here in Baltimore, Maryland, out, you know, not far from DC. And while I was working there about four years ago, I had the, you know, the pleasure of working with Dr. Barber. He was our North Carolina state director. (laughs) And I worked with the president and CEO at that time, Benjamin Jelly. So I just want to plug that he is just as genuine and just as beautiful of a spirit in person as he is a large presence and voice on the stage. But back to your question, where is the intersection of justice and faith? It's in the Bible (laughs) for me. I say that because so much of what is manifesting these days as the social justice movement is rooted scripturally, if you are someone who is familiar with the life of Jesus and the type of causes, if you will, that Jesus undertook. So for me, my theology, my Christian theology may be described as fairly progressive, if you will. And I am someone who honestly 
seeks to model herself and her ministry after the life and example that Jesus walked out on the earth. And so having come from an evangelical background and having an appreciation for that, I would look a little bit different in terms of how I interpret scripture to implement it in everyday life. And I think that's what social justice and faith is about. It's more than just being about and talking about the religion, about Jesus. It's about demonstrating and walking in the religion of Jesus. And that's where social justice and the Christian faith particularly intertwine for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I consider myself to be progressive and an ally, but I don't have a faith-based background. And so for me, what I see out there is a real absence of God sometimes. Like there was no God for me in that eight minutes and 46 seconds. There was no God for me with Brianna Taylor. There was no God for me with Nina Pop. So I wonder, do you have a message for me? Do you have something to say? Do you, there are millions of people like me who would really love and appreciate the idea of God, but we don't see it playing out now and through the history of this whole struggle that we've had since the inception of this country? Well, my recommendation might be that God be seen in the face of the dying George Floyd that God be seen in the faces of those who are being denied justice. We're called upon to recognize the God in one another. And I think that sometimes we forget about that. And so when we are denying justice to any part of God's creation, that is a call for us as people who are seeking a way to understand and to interpret what is happening, you can look at these types of injustices as an invitation to be God's face, voice, and feet on the earth, to be the ones who speak out for those who can no longer speak out for themselves. So you have to look at it in my perspective from a less theological standpoint and a more humanistic standpoint. So while I don't believe God physically intervenes, because people say that a lot, Lori, right? Like if there were a God, why would all these evil things be happening? But there was no promise that evil would not take place. The promise was that we would not be going through it alone. And so I feel like we can find God in the places and spaces where we can embody what we believe God to be and speak out and support and provide our insight into how God would interpret and intervene in some of the injustices we see that are out of our control. I like that. Really interesting. I once had someone suggest to me that my lack of faith is really a form of grief like unreconciled grief, which is another reason why when I saw you out there on the internet talking about grief and trauma, it just, it resonated with me. So can you talk a little bit about your perspective around grief and trauma and what you're currently trying to do to address it? Well, the pain and the grief is so tangible right now, Lori. Really what I'm trying to do is offer people a space to have that pain and that grief validated first and foremost, because there's so many things coming at us at once that it's almost people are finding themselves numb, if you will. If you think about it, there's sort of a numbness that has come in because our body, we have a mechanism that protects us. We have these defense mechanisms that if there's too much that we can bear, you know, there's a saying that says, you know, God won't put more on us than we can bear. I have questions about that. Me but too. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'd like to talk to the manager on that one. But at the same time, I do believe that our brain sort of goes into a protective mode 
when there are things that are just so egregious that it may take us over an edge. And so if you look at how this year has started out, you know, all of the hope that was in 2020 and the beginning of a new decade. And, you know, all of the things that we think about when we hit that new year, we make our resolutions. This is going to be the best year of my life. And this is going to be the year that I overcome or whatever those plans are and the optimism that comes along with the beginning of the year. Then all of a sudden we start getting hit with these major deaths, you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, just some of these different things that hit us. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. And then we get, you know, mid-February and they start talking about this coronavirus that might be coming our way. And lo and behold, here we are considering that we might be entering a second wave of that. So on the heels of the pandemic, then, of course, you had the economic fallout and people losing their jobs and losing their way of living. And if that wasn't enough, then we had the death of George Floyd, which erupted in uprisings that are still happening across the country in different parts of different states and in different ways. So I read something the other day that said, who thought that we would be experiencing the impact of the 1918 pandemic flu, the 1929 depression, and the 1968 Civil Rights Act all at one time? Hmm. That is well said. Oh, my God. Well, I am really intrigued by this idea that we're all in a stage of grief right now, because that really resonates with me. And many of us, when we're grieving, we're paralyzed and paralysis causes all forms of toxic behaviors, some of which we're seeing play out on a national stage. So you specifically are doing some work around grief and trauma. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that and where that's heading and what you see for that. So the workshop that I'm actually going to be doing on this Sunday is entitled The Pain I Feel. The Pain I Feel. It's a grief and trauma processing workshop because what I have found, Lori, is that like you just mentioned, a lot of times we don't recognize that what we're actually acting out, if you will, is grief. We might think that we're angry or we might think that we're frustrated. And those may be a part of it, but the processing of it going more deeply, we're scared or we're hurt. And so I feel like I have been, in addition to being a minister prior to going into pastoral ministry, which I was a a part-time pastor at a local church here in Montgomery, Maryland, very recently until the end of 2019. But prior to pastoral work, I was a chaplain, a hospital chaplain for several years. And for those who don't know, you know, chaplains, of course, generally come alongside, not just when you're dying, but during times of trauma and pain and potential life-threatening illnesses, hospital chaplains are called upon to come sit with families, pray with families, you know, provide ministry to them, or even accompany families to the morgue if necessary. I've had to do that. I've had to sit and hold the hand of patients who are transitioning from this life to the next. So in chaplaincy, we focus on not just how a person is feeling, but helping them to understand it better in a way to care for themselves better. So that's what my grief and trauma processing workshop is about, is let's get to the bottom. Let's name what the pain is. Yes, you have pain, and most people just need that pain to be validated, to know that it's okay how they are feeling. We're going to sort it out. We're going to lay it out. We're going to call a thing a thing, and we're going to name it because the way that we get to the naming is the way that we get to the healing. You know, as you were talking, I had two thoughts. I mean, Reverend Wendy, you were born to do what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Your whole life is really 
By the way, that's such a beautiful gift because so many people really struggle to figure out what their purpose is and then marry it with a way that they can be helpful. And you're doing that. Have you always known that you were built for ministry, that this is what you're doing? Not at all. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Funny that. (laughs) As I mentioned, I'm originally from Ohio and growing up, I was just, you know, my interest was communications, quite honestly. I was going to be, you know, a PR, uh, Oprah, uh, something, you know, (laughs) but as life would have it. I instead wound up majoring in like education and human services. So that's something that is certainly in my background. It really wasn't until the death of my mother, my senior year in college at Howard, that I had a bit of an epiphany. By that time, as I said, I was a senior at Howard about to graduate and my mother God rest her soul, had actually struggled with alcoholism. So addiction is in my background, and I do some work around that as well, alcohol addiction. But my mother had passed, and I found myself at a crossroads. I also found out I was pregnant shortly after that. So, sheesh, okay, mom's dead. I'm a single mother. I'm just getting out of college. What is my life? So I sought out church. I felt like, you know, I had friends and family who were recommending that I go visit church. I hadn't gone much, you know, other than Bible school and things like that growing up. But I went at 24 years old and I just took my empty vessel into a local church. And that particular message that day spoke directly to me and it filled a void I didn't realize was there in terms of how it needed to be filled. And that started my spiritual journey and my journey into faith and led me ultimately to seminary, which it was there that I determined that hey, this might be a life calling thing. I I thought I was just going to feel better, but it it turns out that there may be more to it for me. So I've been in ministry since that time. That was probably 2006 when I graduated Howard School of Divinity. Wow, what a journey. You know, the second thing I was thinking of, and I'm not surprised to hear you say that you were interested in communications and PR, is that so many businesses need a workshop like the one that you're offering, need your services, need your skills, because there's so much unresolved conflict, unresolved trauma between employees, unresolved issues. And we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And we get stratified workforces. We get people fighting over 3.2% merit increases unfair performance management systems, unequal treatment. I mean, you know, what do you think about all of these businesses that are putting out these PR statements around racism and equality? I don't even need to finish the sentence. I can guess what you think about it, but they're not living their their statements. I mean, it's so frustrating. Can you react to that? What are you thinking? Well, they're doing what they think they have to do, or they think what, you know, that that's what they're supposed to do. But anyone who has been experienced, who has been doing this work, who has been living this life, sees it, unfortunately, for the superficial offering that it is, because they don't have to look much further beyond that statement to see that you're not walking the walk. And so it's more than just talking the talk, but it goes back to what you were referring to earlier and this notion of what's happening internally within organizations and within corporations. You know where that's stemming from? It's stemming from what's going on internally with the employees. And so, yes, until I can make myself whole, how am I going to make someone else whole? So, yes, 3.2, 2.1, that's going to matter to me, but it has nothing to do really with the person that I'm redirecting my anger to. It's harder to look within myself and say, I feel like this is making me feel more unworthy than I already feel. Wow. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. But I think about all of these leaders, and I'm using air quotes now, which you can't see because we're on a podcast, right? But leaders who are 
trained in finance, but they're not trained in the human condition. And I wonder what you think ministry or what you think the social justice movement could offer to these leaders. Like I have some ideas, but do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think there's a moment where they're paying attention right now and they could really start to think about the workforce differently. And I think that's it. I think that there's so many opportunities in this moment. And this is a moment. I mean, this is a moment. I've been around for a minute. (laughs) And this, we really have an opportunity. More people seem to be listening now. And that's where healing and conversations and dialogue start when we're willing to listen to one another deeply. Not just, I hear you. No, I'm listening. What are you saying? And you're reflecting back to the person what it is that you are hearing them say. And we just have to take the opportunity to build up our people. I say about, you know, some people talk about mega churches. Sometimes in churches, we worry about building mega churches, but we're not building mega people. Same thing with corporations. What's the use in building corporation, a mega corporation, and you're not building a mega team and a mega force? And I think, Lori, and this is a whole nother podcast for another time, probably, but I think there's also some conversation to be had around people's worth and identity being so tied to their work. Wait, Reverend Wendy, I'm going to interrupt you because that's what this podcast truly is all about. Like you don't (laughs) fix work unless you fix yourself, right? And you don't fix work by instituting a program or a policy. In fact, the more you double down on work, the less human you become. And so I'm so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is like the fundamental belief of everything I do. And a lot of people say to me, oh, my identity is intertwined with work and that's important to me. And I'm like, well, you're missing out. And, you know, I would love to blame society, you know, in Fawcett said it's difficult to build and construct community in a society that's been rooted in rugged individualism. So, you know, we still need to work on that aspect of connective community to one another. But we have somehow also reinforced this notion that your value is tied to your productivity potential. And that is, that's not okay because people are feeling, and I'm not minimizing in any way the outbursts and the anger that people were feeling around the lockdowns. I know you saw that there were a lot of sort of counter protests and we saw people storming the state house in Michigan that were armed and they were like, let us go back to work. People from all walks of life were commenting, and I have friends on all sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, they were saying things like, if we don't let people get back to work, we're going to have more deaths from suicide and depression and people's mental health failing because they can't work than we will from COVID-19, which is preposterous. But I understand what they were saying. But that broke my heart because in many ways, I'm feeling like, so these people are probably not feeling valuable because they're not producing. And how do we get them to understand that if you never work another day in your life, you are worthy. You have value to add to this community, to this world and society. And what you do for a living is not the only way that your contribution is defined. Reverend Wendy, you're going to make me cry. I mean, this is, this is exactly the core of what I believe. And also the core of so much despair, despondency, addiction, dependence. You mentioned your mother who had issues with alcohol. My father's had issues 
alcohol and he has not worked for the past 30 years because of that. And I just think like it's the chicken and the egg because the more he drank, the less he could work and the less he worked, the less valuable he felt and the more he drank. I mean, it's this vicious cycle and he just never felt that his work was not his worth. I mean, it was just really interesting. It was inextricably linked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I could talk about this kind of stuff for hours. I'm really glad that you joined us on the podcast today. And if anybody wants to find out more about your grief and trauma workshops or bring it into their corporation, where can they contact you? Where can they find out more about your big ideas? Well, please just reach out to me. I am on Twitter at RevWendy3. That's my handle. Follow me on Twitter because I do a lot of my professional workshops and advertising and that's there. But I also have a YouTube channel and that's also RevWendy3 Community of Compassion. I think that's where you said you might have saw my channel, Lori. I did. I loved it. I learned a lot. But mainly on Twitter and email, RevWendy3 at gmail.com. I'll send out announcements and that about my grief and trauma workshops as I put them together. But the first one will be this Sunday at 6 p.m. via Zoom. And I'll be posting that link on Twitter later today. I'm so grateful that you shared a little bit of time with us today. We'll make sure we include all of that information in the show notes. And Rev Wendy, stay safe out there. And let's talk again in maybe six months and see where the world is then. Well, yes, I, definitely. I Again, I appreciate you inviting me and let's keep the world lifted up. Let's keep ourselves lifted up. Let's keep the world lifted up. We can get through this. We will get through this, but we'll have to do it together. I trust you. Thanks again for being a guest. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rev. Wendy Hamilton. For more information on her grief and trauma workshops and how you can bring that into your organization or just general information about her Twitter account and all the smart things she has to say, head on over to lauriruderman.com. Before we close the show, I have a favor to ask. If you like Punk Rock HR, if you find that it adds value to your podcast listening rituals, if you feel like you hear stories here that you don't find anywhere else, I would love for you to share this podcast with just one other person. Tell them, hey, I know the title's different. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I think you're going to enjoy it. I would really appreciate that. And if you want to let me know who you forwarded the podcast to, I'll follow up and introduce myself. Just send me a note at hello at letsfixwork.com because I love meeting new people and I love especially connecting with new listeners. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.